Welcome to Sportsnet 650, Sportsnet Today. I'm Dominic Shermati, your host, coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Text 650-650, Dunbar Lumber text line, Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Abuse in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, coming to you with some breaking news off the top of the show. And this is fresh, folks. Uh, John Herdman, head coach of the men's national team for Canada at the soccer level, is leaving his position with the team. He is joining Toronto FC of MLS, leaving the men's national team head coachless, essentially. And uh, joining us now on the line, former national team member, uh, now voice of your Vancouver Whitecaps, uh, one of them on apple tv uh paul dolan paul how you doing <laughs> i'm good dom how are you doing i'm good this uh this is quite shocking news uh we knew that uh he had opportunity to go to tfc but it just seemed like an odd decision at the time considering you know copa america's coming up that's a massive tournament on the international level and then we have of course the world cup in 2026 right here in canada how do you how do you react to this news that he's leaving the men's national team? It's a, it's a stunner. Um, it's a stunner from the start of the rumors uh, to the finalization that, although we haven't heard from him yet, confirming it uh, by all accounts and all the reports, it's happening. And um, you're right, Dom, when you consider what lies ahead for the Canadian national team coach, whether it was John Herdman, who had an agreement from what I understood signed until the end of the 2026 tournament, a tournament that you're hosting that you have every possibility of advancing from your group. in, especially with 48 teams now, and depending whether they go with the three team or the four team groups, regardless uh, you'd think would get a favorable draw as one of the seeds. Uh, and some of the other things that you mentioned ahead of the world cup, like the Copa America uh, and then another gold cup. So it's it's somewhat surprising because of the guaranteed qualification to another World Cup and to kind of get over the hump of not performing all that well in the last World Cup, you know, to, to leave a good legacy. Not to say that John Herdman hasn't left a good legacy within Canadian soccer with what he's done with the women's team and to get Canada qualified to Qatar with the best record in CONCACAF. But it's a new challenge for him. I get the sense that he's a type of coach that likes a new challenge, that doesn't want to be stuck in something for uh, a long term necessarily. You know, I'm not sure exactly how many years he was at with the women's team, but obviously a couple of uh, Olympic qualifications and, and medals there. And then with the national team uh, for about six years, I think it is six or seven years, but it's, uh, it's a big moment uh, and, and it's a completely new challenge for him. 
officially now from the Can- uh, Canada Soccer Twitter uh, profile, they have tweeted out a thank you to John Herman. So the news made official, <laughs> official. Yeah. by Soccer Canada. Uh, Paul, uh, coaching at the international level, I would say, in my opinion, uh, more prestigious as a job, head coaching job, than uh, coaching in Major League Soccer. Obviously, Toronto FC has its warts. Uh, there's a lot of uh, egos there. There's a lot of big-name stars. That team's struggled this year. Um, what does this say about the state of Soccer Canada and the you know the national team on both sides, male and female, uh, that Herman would give up such a, I mean, a big job to go to Major League yeah. Soccer? Well, obviously, he's very close to the situation in terms of the, the financial capabilities of what monies he can get to um, you know, take his team into either friendlies or Nations League or those types of games. And the fact that they only have the one friendly against Japan in, in the upcoming two windows here, that, that is something that I'm sure was part of the reason why he felt that, okay, if I have the backing of a MLSE who owns Toronto FC, then as one of the best capitalized teams in Major League Soccer, that's not going to be an issue. I'll be able to get the players that I want. Uh, I'll have the backing there. And again, I think a lot of it might be a different challenge, you know, rather than a national team challenge where it's uh, more of a tournament type focus uh, and you're, you've got individual windows that are few and far between actually throughout the season uh, to actually have a club and to work with them from the ground up to bring players in. Uh, You know, you're not chasing uh, internationals or dual internationals where you don't know if you're going to get that player. You know the players worldwide that you can get now with that budget that MLSC has. I think that part of it probably was something that was attractive to him as well. Whereas with Canadian soccer, you know, what what is the state? Well, we all kind of know that, that the financial um, future of Canada soccer is somewhat clouded. So where does the men's team go from here? And is is there a defined path from here? Not yet. I wouldn't think, although once the rumors start flying, you'd think that Jason DeVos and the group at Canada Soccer would start to think about uh, how you're going to fill this because this is a plum opportunity for someone to come in. Whether or not you know you consider the financial restrictions possibly that that coach will be under over the next little while, you just can't have a World Cup guaranteed birth uh, go to waste. You've got to bring in someone that can have an effect on these players, whether it's someone who's been involved before. You know, you, you're catching me out here because I haven't even really thought about who it could possibly be, whether they look outside fair. or internally. You know, it's. Uh, I'm thinking that it would probably be someone maybe who, uh, like a Bobby Smirnotis, maybe at, uh, at the Canadian Premier League, someone like that who has... Uh, knowledge of the Canadian national team players, but who knows? Um, I think it's going to be a long search. I don't think it needs to be done overnight. You want to get it right before you're hosting 2026 at home. Paul Dolan, voice of the Whitecaps on Apple TV and a former national team member, of course, joining us right now on Sportsnet today, Sportsnet 650. Uh, when you think of John Herman's legacy uh, within Soccer Canada, uh, what comes to mind at the top? Well, it's impossible for me to say that without having giving you the insight that I have of having actually worked with him. And, and, and working with him uh, as late as the 2019 Gold Cup, I know that there was uh, a 100% effort on his part to turn 
every single stone over to find the best players, find the best dual internationals to uh, make sure that his team was 100% prepared. And, and I've almost never seen anything like it in terms of the preparation. Um, the legacy of qualifying a team to the World Cup and, and winning the group, which I think is kind of a little bit underrated. And I know that it doesn't matter whether you win it or not. You, you qualify for the World Cup, and that was a big prize. But Canada was the top team in the CONCACAF region um, where they had to go through that back route first as well before they even qualified for the octagonal. Uh, so uh, I think that will be his, his biggest legacy on the men's side, obviously two Olympic medals on the women's side. So uh, I think you can say that it was a rousing success, but at the same time, uh, maybe you could say it's a little bit unfinished, uh, especially ahead of a home World Cup. And the fact that he's left at this point, I don't know all the reasons. I'll probably talk to John at some point to find out why he made the move. Again, I think uh, a new challenge might be something where he feels that he has a little bit more support financially. Uh, But you have to say that his legacy was as a successful Canadian men's national team coach to do and, and reach the one goal that he was looking to do, which was to qualify Canada to a world cup. When talking to some of his, uh, his players, they all describe him as a great motivator uh, and someone who's really good at just getting the team together, pushing in the same direction. When you look at the job ahead of him in Toronto, do you think he's the perfect fit for TFC? Well, there's nowhere to go but up, that's for sure. And if it takes motivation, then John Herdman's the guy. It's going to take a lot more than that, obviously. Uh, it's going to take uh, tactical nuance. It's going to take uh, the players that fit. But I think that's where one of his strengths is as well, is bringing a a different assortment of players together. You know, obviously with the Canadian team, they had uh, a a bonding, uh, unifying thing, which was that they're all Canadian players who wanted to get to a World Cup. That's a a tremendous focus to have. Now you've got a little bit of a bigger challenge to bring a wider assortment of players, a more diverse, diverse group together to try to have that common goal of winning an MLS cup and the other trophies that are achievable. Uh, But I think he's a perfect guy who can do that, especially uh, when you start from where you are now. And then that's similar to where he started with the Canadian team where we hadn't qualified for a world cup in 36 years. And he was able to do that. So uh, I have every faith, every belief that he can do that, that he can motivate a group of players and also have his imprint tactically and culturally, too, as to who they bring into that mix uh, to make sure that that's a group that would fight for each other and have success. Again, if you've missed the breaking news, John Herdman, head coach of men's uh, national team for Soccer Canada, has departed for Toronto FC. He will be the head coach of Toronto FC in MLS. Uh, Speaking to Paul Dolan on Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. Paul, I'd have to be remiss not to ask you about the Whitecaps since we have you on the air. Big 3-2 victory over Cascadia rival Portland. On the weekend, they now lead the Cascadia Cup standings, which is uh, obviously a fan-driven trophy, but one nonetheless they haven't won since 2016, so it would be good to have that hardware in the building. Uh, what did you make of Vancouver's uh, win over Portland, especially coming off of that, I would say, somewhat disappointing loss against San Jose, where they seemed to be the better side? They were the better side against San Jose. They pummeled them. It was a goalkeeper who stood on his head in the earthquake goal who won them the points. And they got caught out on a counter. And I think it actually might even play into the Whitecaps' hands, albeit you look at their road record and it would say otherwise, just the two wins now 
after the the win against Portland, but it may play into better the way they play, which is to counter, be a counterattack team, where when they get on the ball and you get someone like an Ali Ahmed on it, and you look at that 11, too, that the Whitecaps had uh, starting that that game against Portland, to me, that's the best 11 that they can put out on the field with Richie and Sammy now in those wide positions. So uh, you've got a lot of dynamicism. You could counterattack against a team that likes to counter you in Portland, and that's how the Whitecaps scored their goals. I think it was one of the best games they've played all year long. Yes, it was tight near the end. They had to kind of hold on, uh, but that's when you count on your goalkeeper and your defenders to make the, the last plays that they did there. And I think going into Chicago now and Toronto, which will be a big one, because that's a, the next question is when does John Herdman actually start with Toronto FC? Is that an immediate thing? I guess it is, but um, that will be an absolutely massive encounter. I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, what have you made of Richie Larea and uh, Sam Adekubi so far? As advertised, you know, they're, they're attacking wide players who, especially Richie, likes to go one-on-one, gets inside the area. The number of penalty kicks and free kicks that player has drawn, I think he was the best player for Toronto FC this year, and he played in a bunch of different positions. He's such a versatile player. He played at center back at Bob Bradley, played him in quite a few of the games this year, and he was a standout in that position. So he gets on the ball, he attacks, he draws the penalty kick that wins him the game. Sam Atakubi sets up the first goal with a great ball across. And and so far in the early going, despite you know not playing full 90 minutes right from the start, uh, they're going to take some time to get adjusted to their teammates, but it's been uh, great returns in the early going. They currently sit seventh in the Western Conference of Major League Soccer, but Paul, they have the second best in uh, goals for of uh, any team in the Western Conference. Is this team better than it's standing? Yeah, I think so too, because if you remember in the early part of the year, the chance creation was huge, but the finishing wasn't. And that was one of the issues. And, excuse me, now both Brian White and Ryan Gauld are absolutely on fire. I think you have to put the Ryan Gauld in the MVP conversation. He's been so good. So what's the what's the ceiling for the Whitecaps as I, as my last question here? Like what where do you think they they get to this season? I think they have every reason to think that they can be in a home um, game type scenario, uh, finishing in the playoffs above uh, third or fourth, where they can finish uh, to be able to host a game and miss that play in game. But uh, you say that. You're, you've played one game down now. Of you got six more away from home, away from home, which is just that's tough. You know, I've never seen anything like it. None yeah. of the players, none of the coaching staff has ever seen anything like it. Obviously, one of them forced because of the rain out in Colorado. But this will be a true measure of the character of the team, and, and that's an area where I don't think you have any question marks. It is a very good, um, cohesive team. I think Benny's done a terrific job on that side of things. I think Axel's done a terrific job in terms of organizing and putting together a solid team that's got some depth now as well. And if they can go unscathed, if you get Ryan Gold injury-free, if you get Brian White injury-free, Andres Kubas as well, he'll miss the next game because of a suspension. But you've got key pieces in key parts of the team. The wing-back situation has been addressed. I think it's a team that can really make some inroads uh, up the Western Conference standing so that they will host a playoff game at some point. Paul Dolan, always a pleasure having you on and talking soccer. Thank you for coming on on such shortness uh, with regards to the breaking news with Soccer Canada.
Yeah, happy to do it, Dom, anytime. Have a good day. There is uh, Paul Dolan. Uh, he works for Apple TV, calls the games for the Whitecaps, and he's also played at the national team level as well for Canada at, uh, in soccer. Uh, so if you missed the breaking news, uh, once again, John Herdman has walked away from his head coaching position with the men's national team for Soccer Canada. He now joins Toronto FC of Major League Soccer. Uh, he's put out a statement, I'm grateful for the incredible opportunity to have represented Canada for the past 12 years, for the moments I have been able to share with the players, the staff, and the supporters, I have arri- I arrived in New Zealand from New Zealand in 2011 with the aim of changing the game in our country, and I've been able to form many deep connections through experiences in London 2012, a home World Cup in 2015, Rio 2016, World Cup qualification in 2022, and ultimately the FIFA World Cup Qatar in 2022. The goal was always to leave the game in a better place, and I'm confident that goal has been achieved for Canada. That is uh, the statement from John Herdman uh, as he walks away from Soccer Canada uh, and takes the job with Toronto's Toronto FC of Major League Soccer. Uh, it is Sportsnet today. I'm Dominic Shermati. Uh, we're currently efforting to get Josh Clokey on from uh, The Athletic to also chime in on this news. He's the one that broke the news, of course, that uh, Herdman is taking the position with TFC. Um, there's no two ways about it, folks. This is a big blow for the Canadian national team, not just for the men's side, just for the brand of Soccer Canada in general. Um, from the outside looking in, it looks as though John Herbin really was a shield for for the national team and, and all the drama that was occurring uh, behind the scenes and publicly. Uh, very well documented now with everything from uh, Canadian soccer business and uh, how underpaid the women were, of course, as well. And just financially everything going on with Canada soccer it's not a good look uh this whole thing has been a mess ever since they've come back from Qatar 2022 and quite honestly it's sad as a fan of soccer and and someone who's cheered for Canada his whole life uh at the soccer level someone who's a diehard and watches all the games he can this is a tough day this is a tough day because you go into a world cup with such high hopes and such optimism that this program that for years has been mired in mediocrity and just poor leadership and just drama after drama, that they finally turn the corner, that it's finally shaping up and that Canada soccer is finally going to be on the, you know, the world stage with some of the best programs that you have out there. And you get to Qatar and, and, you know, you don't win a game, but you certainly do the country proud with your play. And then you come home and everything falls apart for this, for this organization. And it's sad. It's really sad. Because as a fan of this country and as a fan of, of, of the players... You know, the hope that Alfonso Davies and and company gave to this country that things are getting better for this national team. It's almost like for nothing. 
And that's a feeling you don't want. As, as a Canadian and as, as someone who, who loves this team and wants this team to do great things, you don't want that. Uh, once again, John Herbin, out uh, from Canada Soccer's national team. He joins TFC. The man who broke the news, uh, Joshua Clokey of uh, The Athletic, joins us now. Josh, uh, can you take us through the timeline here? When uh, did it really become a possibility that uh, John Herdman was going to leave Soccer Canada? Has this been in the works for a long time? Yeah, it became an outside possibility, um, you know, early in the summer. I think especially after um, the Nations League finals, you know, when Canada lost to the United States um, and, you know, John Herdman publicly called out Canada soccer for their lack of resources and, you know, quite literally said he, he wasn't sure if Canada soccer was serious. Um, and that's a quote about, you know, winning a World Cup at home. Now, you know, people that know Canada, you know, maybe don't think Canada had a chance of winning the World Cup at home. But the fact that, you know, he was calling out his own organization in public and kind of sowing the seeds of discontent, it became far more likely that, you know, he could seek other possibilities. Um, and then my understanding is, you know, he went to, to TFC because, you know, a few days after that final, or sorry, a few days before that final, Bob Bradley was was let go as Toronto FC head coach. And I think if you're John, that a move to club football, which he's always wanted, make a lot of sense in terms of a, a soft landing at TFC. So it became a, an outside possibility come July, but I think things really, really got serious over the last few weeks. And my understanding is John Herdman, you know, let his staff know today that he was leaving. So it came together very, very quickly at the end. So where does the national team go from here? Obviously you've tweeted out that uh, some of the assistant coaches are also leaving. Um, like where does this leave the, the men's national team program? Yeah, so Mauro Biello, who's the assistant coach, one of the assistant coaches, he's in charge of the forwards. Um, he's going to be taking over the team on an interim basis. And, you know, I would expect that he would lead the team into their next game. It's a friendly against Japan, October 15th. I would expect that there will be, a, you know, a pretty comprehensive hiring process because this is going to be an in-demand job, right? The opportunity to coach a World Cup at home and coach, you know, literally some of the most, like literally some of the best players in the world and, you know, Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David. And come 2026, you know, the likes of Tejon Buchanan, Stefan Astakio, they'll be even better. Um, so it'll be a, a position that I expect will be in demand. You know, one name that I'm really keeping a close eye on is Bobby Smirniotis. He's the head coach at Forge FC, Canadian Premier League. He's won three of four Canadian Premier League titles of fantastic tactical mind and I, I think that's something that you know the men's national team could stand to use more of is more tactical instruction more tactical nuance I think they were exposed in the World Cup and the Nations League as not having a, a really solid you know tactical blueprint so he's a name that I'm kind of keeping an eye on he's arguably the best coach in Canada right now but I think there will be plenty of candidates for the job. How big of a priority is my one of my last questions here for you? How big of a priority is Copa America in 2024? Obviously, it's being played in the States, but that would be a massive tournament for this country to participate in, especially with the likes of Brazil and Argentina, Chile, Colombia. Um, where does this now sit on the list of priorities for the men's national team now without a head coach? 
I mean, it, it is the most important priority for this team right now. You're going to have to get a coach in, I would expect, at the very latest before the end of the year. Um, so you can, you know, really focus on on not just qualifying for that tournament, but again, implementing a new kind of tactical structure. You know, Canada does not get the opportunity to play the likes of Argentina and Brazil very often because those are very expensive friendlies to book. And it's no surprise to anyone, Canada soccer doesn't have the kind of financial resources to book those kind of friendlies. So these are the opportunities you get to challenge yourself against the best teams in the world ahead of 2026. Because I know I'm pushing forward here, but it is imperative that Canada get out of the group in 2026. So this is a prime opportunity to test yourself against the kind of teams that you will be playing in Qatar, teams that you might not get to play throughout 2025. So it's the most important kind of build-up for, for 2026. So, you know, having the right coach in place, making sure the players are unified with this coach, you know, ahead of Copa America, it, it is the most important thing for this men's team right now. Last one for you, Josh. Uh, where does this leave the reputation of the organization as a whole? Well, I mean, I, it, they're not in the best place right now right you you know it, it's been a tough month tough few months i mean it you don't have to go very far back i mean we're talking october for example you know in the lead up to the last world cup it canada's you know canada's men's national team were just such a feel-good story and it was so easy to get behind them and you know the rug has has completely been pulled out from under this team um or just in terms of their their, their public perception I think what needs to happen is, you know, the men's national team just need to kind of escape some drama for the next few months. And that means potentially agreeing on a contract with Canada soccer. That means finding a head coach who just wants to to focus on football first and tactics first um, and just kind of quieting the noise around them, because the more noise that comes with them, I think the worse their reputation gets. So if they can just focus on winning matches and, getting back in the good books in the eyes of the public, I, I think, you know, that'll be important just for the organization as a whole, right? Absolutely. Uh, Josh, thank you for hopping on at such short notice, especially uh, in light of the breaking news. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, anytime, guys. Thanks so much. There he is, Joshua Cloakey, staff writer at The Athletic, breaking the news that uh, John Herdman, former national men's team head coach, uh, is leaving Soccer Canada will join Toronto FC of Major League Soccer as their head coach and bench boss. Uh, that does it for the Soccer Talk. Coming up next on Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650, uh, going to dive into the Formula One talk uh, with Mark Schofield as a fantastic race in Zandvoort this weekend in Holland. Uh, we'll talk all about it coming up. Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Sportsnet 650, Sportsnet Today. I'm Dominic Schermatti, coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech footwear and orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Joining us now, Mark Sofield from Formula One at SB Nation. Uh, and Mark, I have to ask you, was Zanvoort the most exciting race of the Formula One season so far, in your opinion? I think it was the most exciting, Dom, and unfortunately it ended the same way so many other races have with a regular driver up front with a Max Verstappen winning his ninth straight Grand Prix. But we did get a little bit of excitement, the early rain, the late rain, some strategic decisions which shook the field up a little bit. So, yeah, I think it was the most exciting. What was interesting about it, you actually had more overtaking throughout the entire field than 
we've seen it in a lot of races already this season. So I think that made for some some excitement as well. Uh, man, Max is a machine. Nine straight GP wins. He doesn't screw up. And as much as I hate watching Red Bull win everything, I have to appreciate just how good he's been and how special this run is. And for the moment, for a moment during the, the restart there, uh, Mark, it looked like we were going to get a bit of a shootout before uh, between Alonso and Max. So, I don't know, to me it felt like this weekend would have been great for the casuals interested in the sport. I think you're right because there was some intrigue to it. Max said after the racetrack side that, look, you know, this was a little bit tougher than some of the wins he's had this year, you know, the changing conditions. And it's not like, you know, he did qualify on pole, but even that, you know, was a bit in doubt throughout qualifying on Saturday. It seemed like some other teams were going to take a run at him. It seemed like the McLarens were going to be strong and Norris obviously qualified second. You know, George Russell qualified third. He looked strong at times. The Williams duo, both of them getting into Q3. Albon with a P4 and qualified. It seemed like, you know, the field caught him just a little bit. But in the end, you know, he's able to pull away. Look like you said after that restart, after the red flag, with the weather conditions late in the race, that Alonso might be able to turn it into a shootout. But, you know, jokingly after the race, he said he didn't know if he'd be able to leave that track if he did make a move on Verstappen, obviously the Dutch Grand Prix being a home race for him, but he's been so dominant this year. And yes, some of it is the RB19, but you look at the difference between him and Checo, Verstappen's pulling away from him too. So a lot of it is the car, a lot of it is the driver. He's just been a machine this year. We've seen the moments of brilliance, the Monaco qualifying where he get pushed to the brink, some of the races that he's won this year as well, certainly on Sunday where he was tested by the elements, tested by the field, and yet came out on top again. Why do, why do we have wet weather tires, Mark? Because every time we get to a point where it's so rainy that we have to put on the wets, they 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 red flag the race. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting. I mean the, the intermediates I think make sense. You know when you've got some wet conditions, but you know, not enough to go to the extreme wets, not enough to go to the full wets. You know, but as they were discussing on F1 TV during the race yesterday, you know we're in this world where whenever the conditions become such that they need to go to the full wets, they bring up a red flag. Yeah. So maybe we need to sort of get rid of those. I do like the fact that, you know, when it's at least a little bit wet, when it's rained, but, the you know, the surface is wet, you know, they're still out there because it does bring some intrigue. It does open up some strategic elements. I mean, yesterday, for example, when it started raining early, most of the field came in. Albon, for example, stayed out on the softs, and, you know, he slid all the way back to, I think he was P17 at one point, and people were thinking, man, they just completely missed it. But he was able to do 45 laps on those slicks, even in wet conditions, and put himself back in the points. And so it does add a strategic element. So I like the fact that they at least race with the intermediates. But when they decide to go full wets and then shut out, shut it down and bring out the red flag, maybe they could rethink that a little bit. I would think so. I understand when all the cars are aquaplaning, it's, it's, it's definitely a risk. It's definitely a hazard. But it just it seems redundant to have these tires that are specifically made for those weather conditions and then they're just like, nope, we're not going. And he, Max even came yeah. in. Max put on the wets. I think Albon was the first one to put on wets. Like it was, yeah, it was interesting because if you if you let those guys race with the wets on, they're making up they're making up laps. They're making up time against the guys in the intermediate. Yeah. So I don't know. It was just yeah. interesting to me. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, in, in that track, you did see some pooling, some standing water. There were some rivers that were sort of created throughout that second stretch of wet weather. 
I think, you know, that plus Sonoda, then so Guan Yu going right off the track, and Guan Yu, so Guan Yu going straight into the wall. That made it feel, look, we got to shut this down. But generally, I'm right there with you. Uh, Mark Schofield, uh, Formula One at SB Nation, does some uh, NFL stuff as well. Mark, why does Ferrari hate Charles Leclerc? That first pit stop was horrendous. They weren't prepared with the right tires. They don't replace his clearly broken front wing. I don't, I like, I could not figure it out. I, I don't know what's happening there. And I, it's a wooded bit in some of the stuff that I do, some of the stuff that I write about the DMs and the texts that I get from Ferrari fans every weekend. But they were just – I can't repeat some of the stuff that I was getting, <laughs> you know, during not just, you know, race on Sunday, but qualifying on Saturday because Leclerc, you know, crashes out in Q3. But, you know, Vasseur, their team principal, he came out and said, look, you know, Charles, he made the decision to come in so we weren't quite ready but look around you. You know, it's not like you're doing this from a remote village in the middle of nowhere. You're on pit lane. You see every other team is diving in to make the switch to intermediates. Get ready. You know, he's not, if he's going to be coming in on pit lane and he tells you he's coming in, he's not coming in for a fresh set of slips. He's coming in for intermediates. Be ready for that. You see the damage on the wind, replace it. Right? They need to fix this. And now, you know, you, you scroll around the rest of F1 media and there's, a lot of people were starting to rumble about, is Leclerc really as good as we think he is? The team's been letting him down. There's been strategic blunders throughout the season, dated back to last year, of course, with Mattia and how that ended. There's Leclerc out this weekend basically saying, look, I cannot wait till I get a new car because we just no consistency with the SF23. Carlos Sainz Jr. said that all day Thursday at the press conferences. He's like, look, this car is so inconsistent. Some tracks we think we're going to be great and we're awful. Some tracks we expect to be awful and we're actually pretty good. They don't know what they're getting. Forget race to race. They don't know what they're getting practice session to practice session. It's been really tough on them right now, and they're not helping things. When, when the car is so inconsistent, everything else has to go perfect around that. You have to make the right strategy calls. You have to do the right job in the pits. And when you're making things worse around a car that's so inconsistent, it's very tough to succeed in Formula One. Uh, Carlos Sainz rumored to make the move to Audi eventually, but Carlos, um, sorry, I would say Charles is the one that has more reason to leave Ferrari. Um, what do you think would happen between those two drivers? I mean, you know, Carlos going to Audi has been sort of, you know, the worst kept rumor yeah. in Formula One right now. It, it, every time you, you know, take a spin around F1 media, that's the rumor that's going around. It's like he's making the move to Audi. He's been the more consistent one of the two this year. You know, when you sort of look at, you know, week to week end, week to week out, I mean, he's been extremely consistent for them this year. Leclerc's been the one that's had, you know, mistakes, crashes in qualifying, quiet crashes and races. And so, you know, it, it, it's a frustrating thing for Ferrari fans because you see one driver that, you know, people think the world of and Charles Leclerc, and it's been very inconsistent. The car's been inconsistent. The team's been inconsistent. And it's just frustrating all around. But, yeah, with respect to size, it does look like he's going to make the move to Audi at some point. Um, and where they go from there remains to be seen. Uh, in the same vein, how is it the Mercedes, a team that won eight back-to-back titles, has had such consistency issues this season? This is very untotal-like. Yeah, it is. And, you know, a, a lot of it is, you know, similar to Ferrari the car. You know, the Zeropod design just did not work. That was the story of last year. They started with it again this year. Now, you know, they've reconfigured the side pod. So they're trying to get better performance from the W14. But there's some strategic calls as well that they've missed on. You know, George Russell qualifies third. 
But then after they sort of the way they handled the start of that race, he's back there in P18 and he's on the radio saying, how did we mess this up? Toto has to go on video and sort of explain what they did, what they got wrong. You know, there's already talk that they basically, you know, they're, they're almost in a sense talking out of both sides of their mouth because in one frame they're saying, look, you know, finishing second in the constructors is a huge accomplishment. We're totally focused on that. But then they're also talking about how they're already working towards next year's car and getting a better car for Lewis, getting a better car for George. Again, inconsistency. And it's it's a head-scratcher from this team. And like you said, it's been next to Red Bull for many years, the standard in Formula One. They're missing on some strategy calls. They're inconsistent week to week. They're still trying to come to grips with the W14, even as they have their eyes set on next year's version. It's a frustrating season for them. It's been an up-and-down season. They're still in second. You know, they're still in a very good position. It's just the game has changed for them. You know, the way we evaluate what Mercedes has changed when we're talking about, you know, getting Hamilton up into a P6 after qualifying 13th as being a good day for them. They didn't used to be that way. That is the standard which we're, which we're judging them by now. That's so weird as a Formula One fan, by the way, when I hear that isn't come it, out of Hamilton's so mouth. When, yeah, when, when you're saying that, you know, finishing second in constructors is a, is a huge accomplishment. No, that's, it was like they had the talking points for Thursday because, you know, Hamilton in the TV pen, Russell at the press conference is basically saying, hey, people are overlooking the fact that we're in second. It's like, well, you're in second. This isn't what we – we don't expect to see you fighting for second. We don't expect to see you, you know, fighting with McLaren and Alpine yeah. and Aston Martin. We expect to see you fighting them up with Red Bull and Verstappen and, and Checo. It's, it's a different game right now. It's, it's Red Bull, and it's basically almost everybody else. Yeah, but not just that. Just hearing Hamilton say, you know, we came sixth today. That's a good day for, for me. Like, that that yeah. shouldn't be like that. You're, you're Lewis Hamilton. Yeah. You're one of the GOATs. Like, sixth? Really? This is the bar? Yeah. I mean, in one sense, you know, to, to go from 13 to six at that track, we're overtaking. Impressive. A, yeah, a, a absolutely. Impressive. But you're right, the, just the general standard, you know, when they, they get double points, uh, P5, P6, and it's like, this is a great day for us. A couple of years ago, Mercedes going P5, P6 would have been looked at as a disaster. You know, but now it's a good day for them. The game has just completely changed. And, you know, part of it is the effects of the cost cap and trying to get that level playing field where, you know, Aston Martin has certainly taken some steps forward this year. And now we're seeing McLaren start to come on. And so, you know, the gap from like teams five to say six, seven, that's tightened. The next step in this sport is getting the gap teams one through seven to tighten up a bit. But Mercedes, they're fighting with the rest of the field while Red Bull's just driving away from everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mark, we should give Pierre Gasly his flowers. Uh, an excellent weekend from him. He's shown flashes of excellence during his career, but it's, again, that word coming up again, it's really about consistency for him at this point, is it not? Yeah, and it, it, that's a great result for him. That's a great result, obviously, for that team that has had such an up-and-down season, you know, changes in management, changes in ownership, changes with team principal, Otmar, he's out. You know, Alan Permain, the sporting director, he's out after three-plus decades with the team. You know, they've had obviously had some bad luck. You think about Australia where that late race, late race restart and, you know, he and Esteban Ocon drive into each other and knock each other out of the points. It could have been a great day for them. They come away empty-handed. You know, but they've had some moments this year. I mean, Esteban had his podium finish in Monaco, a great result there. And Gasly yesterday with a podium, you know, a great result for that team. They just, you know, they went into this year thinking, okay, 
we're going to finish fifth. Like, we have to finish fifth and perhaps challenge for fourth. But with the step that Aston Martin took forward, that threw their whole, you know, timeline that they had laid out of when they were going to really compete, that 100-race timeline that they talked about, it really threw that up in the air. You know, so now they're trying to fight back. They've made so many different changes. But in the midst of it, you have two drivers that, as you said, have shown flashes. It's just, can they repeat this next week? Because we all are afraid of what's going to happen next week. And Monza, after what Gasly did yesterday, you know, a P13 or something like that, where he's going to struggle to get out of Q1, and it's not going to be the same result. We need to see it week in and week out from both of them. Both incredibly talented drivers. That was a great drive yesterday from Pierre Gasly, but it needs to happen week in and week out. Uh, Zamvort, not the easiest course to drive, especially with the conditions we saw yesterday, which made this result all the more surprising. What did you make of Liam Lawson, the rookie driver? He didn't even get practice in, uh, finishing ahead of Yuki Sonoda. I, that was a tremendous debut for him because, you know, again, when you look at it, you know, he finishes P14, but then the penalty from Sonoda gets him ahead of him to P13. That was a great drive, given the context of what he faced, because he didn't find out until the driver's meeting on Friday that, look, you're going this week. Ricardo's out. He's got the broken bone on his hand. He gets an, uh, one practice session in wet conditions, and he brings out a red flag in that practice, practice session as he spins out. Obviously, you know, doesn't advance out of Q1, ends up starting 19th because of a you know, decision that Haas made to have Magnussen you know, switch out some components, so he had to start from pit lane. He starts 19th. Versus P13, that's an impressive debut. And it's at a track where he had no experience. He's driven a Monza before. He's won races at Monza in lower levels before. He's been on podiums at Monza in lower levels before. That's a track where he's actually going to be on somewhat familiar ground. Do I expect him to challenge for a podium or something like that? No, but he might, you know, make a run at the points next weekend. But given everything he faced with his debut, that was a fantastic result. Absolutely. Uh, a few more questions left here with Mark Schofield, the SB Nation, Formula One. Uh, will Logan Sargent hold on to his seat next season with Williams? I don't know. I mean, James Walls, the team's principal, he has talked and stressed patience with that organization. He's talked about don't judge us now, judge us in three years, judge me in three years. It seems like he really wants to keep this driver pairing together. Albon obviously had a great drive yesterday. He's been very impressive this entire season. They want Sargent to perform. Obviously, get into Q3, first American driver to do that since Michael Andretti in 2013. That was a good step, but then he crashes and ends up starting 10th. You know, then he crashes, obviously, yesterday, knocks himself out of a chance where they could have come away with double points, and James Bowles talked about how points were there for the taking for Logan Sargent. He said that grid side before the race, and then he crashes out. This is perhaps, there was some rumbling that Monza, a track he's driven at before, might be his last chance to really put in a good result because it's familiar there. Then when he gets to the rest of the schedule, it's tracks that are all going to be new to him. I think because of the way they've been stressing patience, he's going to be back next year. But I do think that that seat is getting extremely warm. They want him to have success. Obviously, with the growth of Formula One in the States, they want to have an American driver. So there's going to be some pressure to sort of keep him there. But he has to deliver. And I think that FW45 is going to be strong at Monza. That car is very fast, particularly on straight lines. Monza is filled with them. He should be in a position to deliver a good result. But if he struggles yet again, if he has a, a crash in qualifying, if he crashes out in the race again and misses out on points, the pressure is really going to turn up on him. Not to mention getting into Q3. 
with that Williams. Like yeah. it just seemed like going into the weekend that you know that car and that team was going to have a good weekend, and then obviously you know he finishes uh, ten in Q three with the with the DNF. So it's like on one hand they they showing flashes of potential, and then on the other hand it's not finishing races. Um, it, it's been a couple weeks or at least months uh, since we last had an F one hit together, and Lance Stroll really hasn't been able to get out of that mushy middle um alonzo's clearly proving that the aston martin has podium potential do you believe he's eventually going to be squeezed out even though dad is signing the checks it's it's a strange situation don because you know on the one hand you believe that look as as long as he wants to drive that seat's going to be his but alonzo is clearly showing what that amr 23 is capable of and then you have from stroll another pointsless finish on, on sunday and during silly season, you heard some story, you read some stories, heard some rumbling that you know maybe Lance is going to try something different. I even read a story that you know he's a competitive tennis player. Maybe he's going to make the switch to tennis. Like maybe he's just going to decide that you know what, I'm not going to make the, make my dad kick me out. I'm not going to make my dad fire me and sack me. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to go on my own terms and try a different sport. The fact that we're reading stories like that it tells you where this is going. And I've had some people around you know F1 say, look, you know how much do they want to win a title? Because as it looks right now, that's a team that with another driver that's performing, not on Alonzo's level, but just a little bit more of a consistent basis. That's a team that could push themselves. You know, they're in P3 in the constructors right now. They could push for P2. They could get past Mercedes. They could maybe, maybe even threaten Red Bull with the way that that car performs at times and the way Alonzo performs at times, if they just get something from that second seat. So it's a fascinating situation. I'd like to see him rebound because, you know, obviously with the injury at the start of the year, he had a heroic performance in the season open in Bahrain Grand Prix to come back the way he did, where he couldn't even hold the wheel and turn at the times. I'd like to see him step up his game because it's nice when, you know, Aston Martin is in the mix. It was a nice little element to start the season. I'd like to see them make a little comeback here in the second half, and I'd like to see some better performances from him. Absolutely. We agree, too. As a Canadian, we have to cheer for him. We want him to do well, but it's – man, it's been so tough sometimes. Uh, before yep. we let you go, got to yeah, ask you at least – what do you mean? No, it has been. Oh, it, ha- it has been good to see him perform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I misheard you there, Mark. Uh, before we let you go, um, got to ask you a couple of football questions. What did you make of uh, Aaron Rodgers' Jets debut? Looked fairly solid. I mean, we we know the pressure is going to be on that team, to perform. and we've talked about you know their first eight games, six playoff teams, game against the New England Patriots game at Denver and we know the discussion between those two teams and everything Sean Payton has said about the Denver Broncos last year you know obviously Nathaniel Hackett now the OC in New York the pressure is going to be on this team but Rogers looked pretty good Garrett Wilson is going to be a very good weapon for them obviously offensive rookie is a year a year ago that team is on paper very talented they were a near playoff team last year with woeful production at the quarterback position now you bring in Aaron Rodgers they should be good but expectations are high, and they get a tough stretch to start the season. Our last one for you here, Mark. What's going on in Dallas? That whole situation is weird now. It is weird, you know. With from the organization's perspective, giving up a fourth-round pick to take a flyer on Trey Lance, I think that's smart business. You know, when you look at Dak Prescott's injury history, he's been in and out of a lineup at times. You know, he's had some injuries. You want to make sure you've got a viable option at quarterback two behind him. That's what I think this is a move towards, you know, Cooper Rush versus Trey Lance. At some point, you know, if Dak does go down and you need to turn to a quarterback for a game, 
Maybe you could put a package together for Trey Lance and he can win you that game. But I think Dak's frustration, he, he was there's a clip that's been going around where he was asked about it and he showed some frustration. That was more his fondness for Will Greer, who's now sort of odd man out in Dallas, who he had developed a good friendship with. Now with Lance coming in, Greer's on his way out. I think that's the frustration there. You know, Trey Lance needs snaps. That's the bigger problem here. He needs reps. He needs game experience, and he's not going to get that with Dak healthy. And so I understand why the organization did it. It's just going to be a lot to get him the snaps he needs to get him to where he needs to be to win games in the NFL. Mark, you're the best. We love having you on. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, my friend. Have a great week. Enjoy the race this weekend. Thank you, thank you. There's Mark Schofield, Formula One at SB Nation. He also does a bunch of work uh, covering the NFL. You can catch him weekly on The People Show with Bick Nazar uh, as the NFL season kicks off here on Sportsnet 650. That does it for us. I'm Dominic Schermatti. Producers Lena Satagian, Elon Shark. Thank you guys so much for the work you did today. Uh, coming up next, it is the People Show. Bick Nazar, Satyar Shah is back from vacation. Uh, so stay tuned right here, Sportsnet 650.